Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week began the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged with murder in the death of George Floyd. And so far this week, it's been very emotional. We've been shown lots of videos of the incident, heard from compelling witnesses to the scene, and prosecutors are trying to argue that excessive force by Derek Chauvin is what caused Mr. Floyd's death. The defense will say that his death was the result of heart disease and drug use. For more on what we've seen so far in this trial that's expected to last a month, we'll speak to Shauna Chen, reporter at Axios. It's been emotional to say the least. Uh, we've had a number of witnesses, many of whom broke down while they were questioned, cross-examined. Uh, lots of images shown of the scene, video played back which I think has heightened a lot of the, just the feeling, the general sense of what's actually going on in this trial. Prosecution, as you said, has been trying to show that George Floyd was indeed under duress as Chauvin kneeled on his neck. He was crying out. A witness said that he was crying out for his mother as he slowly kind of succumbed. And Chauvin, you know, on the defense side, they're trying to paint George Floyd out to be somebody who uh, was an opioid addict, which his girlfriend spoke about at the trial today, and kind of showing that George Floyd maybe isn't somebody to be trusted, that he had stuff in his system when this was going on that he could have acted out as an aggressor. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, the drug use, because that is going to feature into the defense's side of things, saying that that contributed to him dying. Uh, obviously, it all started with Derek Chauvin's knee on the back of George Floyd's neck, but that's kind of what aggravated thing. And and his girlfriend, Courtney Ross, testified that they were together for three years. She shared a, a very touching story about how they met and all, but uh, she did say that they both struggled with opioid addiction. Yeah, she was very honest and open about that in her testimony, which I think struck a lot of people who were watching. She talked about how they often, you know, used together and had kind of on and off periods of sobriety. He was hospitalized last year, March, so two months before he died. And she was there to kind of support him, help him come out of it. But she did also say that two weeks before the whole incident with Chauvin, he started using again. You're right. And she even said that we're like the typical case of how people get addicted to opioids. You know, he had pain in his neck and back and shoulders and things like that. And very similar. They, so they were taken in his pain medication and just got carried away with it. I think she said their opioid of choice was oxycodone. But yeah, it's just a very emotional there. We also heard from the cashier who took the counterfeit $20 bill that George Floyd tried to pay for some cigarettes with. And, you know, a very emotional again. He expressed guilt even for saying, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have taken it and none of this would have happened. And that was kind of a, a theme that a lot of the witnesses, the bystanders that were there, really just pushing police to stop it and just feeling helpless throughout the whole thing. Regret and guilt have both featured heavily during the first week of the trial. The 17-year-old woman who videotaped the 
encounter, which then later went viral, she was also questioned and she broke down in court saying that she apologizes to George Floyd every night for not doing more, for not interfering. It was a very, very emotional moment. And throughout the week, even jurors have had to take a moment for themselves. There was another man who also testified as a witness. He was the one who spoke of George Floyd's crying out for his mom. And he was also sobbing, as he said, I understand him. I have a mother, too. So it's been really difficult. And for these witnesses to have to, like, go through essentially like a re-traumatization as they watch the footage, our question. And I think that's something that a lot of mental health experts have spoken about how that's going to impact them. And many of them are black. So this is not necessarily something that is new to them, given the U.S.'s history of violence against black folks. We also heard from some paramedics and EMTs that were on the scene who said, basically, you know, we got on the scene and we thought he was dead there at the scene, basically. They couldn't get a pulse. They took him onto the stretcher, put him in the ambulance and tried to resuscitate him. One of the officers, they even asked him to help with chest compressions. And they said that they could never regain a pulse. So that was one of the other difficult things to square away. You know, they were saying that they thought it ended there, basically. Yeah, one of the paramedics spoke of when they arrived. Well, both of them talked about when they arrived at the scene. And the one who checked George Floyd said that he essentially thought Floyd had died when he arrived. But they did try to resuscitate him. They even went so far as drilling a hole in his leg to get IV access. One of the paramedics said that when he got there, he felt that it wasn't a welcoming environment and even talked about how there were raised voices, lots of bodies on top of Floyd. So they were both clearly kind of right there, right front of the scene. It was very tense at the scene. Obviously, this whole court proceeding is going to be tense as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, they expect this to last for about a month. So we'll have a a lot more updates. And then when the defense takes their turn, obviously things will change the way they portray the story. So we'll keep monitoring it. And for now, we have the trial of Derek Chauvin underway. Shauna Chen, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. This week, the long-awaited report by the WHO into the origins of COVID-19 had arrived. But unfortunately, it still leaves key questions unanswered. The most likely scenario is that the virus jumped from bats to a still unknown intermediary animal and then to humans. The findings are called into question, however, as the investigators had little power to conduct an impartial investigation without Chinese influence. For more on what we know about the report, we'll speak to Drew Hinshaw, reporter, the Wall Street Journal. The way to look at this report is this is a request to do more research. They're saying, here's what we've, here's what Chinese researchers mainly have done, and here's what we'd like to do going forward. And what we can see from that is there's not a lot of evidence that this virus was spreading very widely in China before December. And the WHO is saying, okay, you guys haven't found any of that, but we still think there might be some there. So let's go and look at like blood banks Did anybody give blood or has a blood sample in a hospital somewhere from November, October of 2019 that if we went back and tested it, would show they were a COVID patient? That's the kind of thing the WHO wants to do and is asking to do in this report. Yeah, they're also asking for more extensive testing of Chinese farms that supplied these wild animals for both food and fur. Um, But really kind of the uh, when, where and how of all of this has not really been determined. I I mean, I think we kind of knew that was going to happen all along. Tell us a little bit about how this was done, because Chinese researchers were the ones that 
really did all the yeah. footwork, then just presented the information to the WHO scientists. So they really didn't have a hand in, in a lot of this. Most of this was summaries given to the WHO of here's the research we've done. We've tested thousands of animals. They tried to test 92 people retrospectively for antibodies. The WHO said, ah, it seems like not enough people. Like, you know, in all of central China, you should have tested more potential cases than, than 92. But most of this was Chinese researchers giving presentations to the WHO. And in the room are Chinese government officials working for a government that continues to suggest that this pandemic didn't begin in China at all. So it's very complicated, very diplomatic and in an interesting situation. You mentioned those 92 people that they did test. This was out of a pool of 76,000 patients that were suffering these right. COVID-like, uh, influenza-like symptoms, uh, you know, which we generally believe that that's what it was. So, yes, I mean, just to boil that down to 92, I mean, that doesn't re really leave you with a big sample size. Right. And not only that, they didn't test those people until really a, a few days or a couple weeks before the WHO arrived, which is a year. It's like a, a year after those people were sick. Right. The report does pretty much say that it's very, very unlikely that this was not leaked from a lab. Obviously, China is very happy with that. But they still pushed for other ways that it might have come to China, including they said they wanted to look at some health data from the military world games in October in 2019. I think they suggested that it was a U.S. delegation that went there that might have brought right. it in. Right. You can see in this report, the WHO is dealing with, they're dealing with the lab because the Trump administration brought it up. And then China responded, well, it's not our lab. It was your U.S. soldiers coming to Wuhan for the military games. The WHO includes it and says, we need to look more at the, at the military games. And then in the annex says, by the way, nobody at the military games was sick with anything like COVID-19. Really, what the WHO would like to look at, they want to look at animals. They want to look at ferret badgers, mink, raccoon dogs, small mammals who might have been that intermediate animal that got sick from a bat and then spread it to a human. What about the uh, wet market, the Wuhan seafood market there? It doesn't really seem like that was necessarily an origin. It might just seem like that was probably the first major super spreader event. Exactly. I think this market, you know, it's such a, uh, an evocative image a market where there's wild animals. There's a seafood a seafood market. You know, fish don't spread COVID. And even if, they, you know, there, was some, there were some wild animals there, but even when wild animals are sold in a market like this, it's usually like in one part of the market. But when you look at the sampling, they did sampling all over this market, and they found, you know, virus all over the place. It's all over the market. You know, to the researchers we've talked to, that looks more like a bunch of sick people were coughing and sneezing all over this market than there was a cluster of wild animals with COVID-19 in one corner of it. And because one of the other hypotheses was that it possibly could have been uh, contaminated frozen food packaging. They, right. they also said that that was pretty unlikely. Yeah, the WHO has been, you know, they've had to distinguish between two things. It is potentially possible that in a world that has registered, you know, 100 million COVID cases, where there's COVID cases every single day, it is maybe possible that a sick, you know, seafood plant worker coughs onto a, a bag full of frozen salmon, that goes all the way to China, it gets thawed, someone touches it, and then they touch their mouth and they give them, you know, they contract the disease that way. It's not proven really, but it's possible. It is really hard to imagine that the very first case of COVID-19 ever came from something like that. The WHO is saying that's extremely unlikely that the initial outbreak in Wuhan began with a seafood, uh, like imported seafood or something like that.
So where are we left now? We have this report that doesn't really seem like it was done by independent scientists. As, as we mentioned, you know, Chinese researchers had, had a big hand in all of this. Where do we go from here? Are we going to get another Look, the world may never know. The world may never know who was patient zero. We may never know which animal where. We might not even ever know if this began in Wuhan at all. Like, you know, maybe it began in a small town outside. It could have begun in the south of China where people have more contact with bats. We might not ever know where this disease exactly first erupted, who was, you know, person number one, you know, we might not know what we're going to find. I think we're going to find a bat that has a similar virus in it at some point. I think that's probable. I think we're going to find out which animals would have served as a really good intermediary host, a really effective one, you know, like a, a, a mink on a fur farm, potentially something like that. But in terms of really pinpointing kind of like who in October or November 2019 was this first person who made this mistake or whatever happened that right. causes pandemic. I don't think we're going to find out. And we're definitely not going to find out so long as it is overshadowed by these tensions between the U.S. and China. Drew Henshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, too. In political news, a big scandal unfolded. Florida Representative Matt Gates is currently under investigation by the Department of Justice for an alleged sexual relationship with a 17-year-old. Gates, for his part, denies the allegations and says that it's all part of a $25 million extortion plot by a former DOJ official. A report said that it apparently involved two men blackmailing him with details of an alleged orgy with underage prostitutes. And it was all part of an effort to get his father to come up with $25 million to help rescue an American hostage named Robert Levinson from Iran. For more on what we know so far in this quickly changing story, we'll speak to Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. The New York Times original report suggests the Department of Justice, beginning under the Trump administration, it's worth noting, had begun uh, investigating whether Representative Gates had been involved in this relationship with a 17-year-old girl. And if as part of that, he had paid for her to cross state lines, which then introduces new federal potential criminal charges related to sex trafficking that, you know, you can't cross state lines with the minor, so on and so forth. Uh, so that's really what the New York Times report initially said. Now, the response from Representative Gates uh, went sort of sideways from that in interesting and unexpected ways, which I'm happy to get into if, if now is the appropriate time to do so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, he obviously sure. denied the allegations. I think uh, <laughs> one of the next places we can go to is he did an interview with uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News Kind of talking about it at the end of it, you know, Tucker Carlson even said that was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever done. So uh, things kind of went a little haywire. So uh, let's explain some of that. And then we'll talk about how these allegations surfaced because it's connected to a former uh, uh, ally of his in Florida. But yeah, let's talk about some right. of the weirder turns that it took. Yeah, so essentially the initial response from Gates was a very specific denial of the travel allegation perhaps recognizing the added weight of that charge. But then he made his assertions both on Twitter and on Carlson's show that suggested that he was actually the target of an extortion scheme, that someone, a former Department of Justice official, had reached out to him to try and get $25 million in payments in order to keep this story from becoming a big deal and or to get a pardon from President Biden, which seems extremely unlikely for a lot of different reasons. But this was the charge, the Gates race. And he said that he... He had had his father speak with this former Department of Justice official and that they had all this evidence that there was this extortion scheme and that tomorrow there was supposed to be this big down payment on the extortion scheme. And that's why the Times broke the story in order to 
you know, someone leaked it to the Times so that it would ruin their counter investigation. I mean, just this really, really odd sort of response. And, you know, look, we are early enough in this thing that we don't necessarily know what's accurate and what isn't. I will say, though, that there is an extensive track record of legislators facing really serious charges coming up with sort of hard to believe <laughs> counter stories which right. don't pan out. So we'll see if this is a scenario like that. You know, and as you mentioned, this investigation was brought up under the Trump administration, under Bill Barr, the attorney general at the time. Matt Gates is a big supporter of President Trump. Uh, you know, he was there at Capitol Hill on, on January 6th trying to oppose the certification for Joe Biden. As you mentioned, he says this is just a big extortion plot. And I think he's currently engaged right now. But at the time, this was supposed to be right. about two years ago. He was a bachelor and, you know, dating a few uh, women, uh, dating around. And, you know, he says that, you know, in his single days, he's provided for women. He's been a, a, a generous partner and that right now they're trying to make this look like there's criminal action here when he's just kind of a nice guy. That's how he's positioning the whole thing. I mean, look, when you're when you're facing potential criminal charges along these lines, you're going to do your best to, to respond. I mean, you know, neither of us and very few people in America are in a position to evaluate the veracity of what he's saying there. So, you know, we can just sort of let that sit. But it is the case, as you mentioned earlier, that he had this. There's this other Florida politician who after last summer was charged with sex trafficking and, you know, a variety of other charges, you know, some really sort of unusually exotic behavior, even for an official. But that this investigation, according to the Times and then post-confirmation, actually grew out of that other probe that resulted in sex trafficking charges last summer against another Florida elected official. So it's not as though this is totally out of the blue. And I think it's really important, too, to consider the context of what you started out with, which was this idea that, you know, maybe he might go to Newsmax, Right. Even as far back as February, during the second impeachment trial of the former president, Gates had sort of flirted with this idea of, well, maybe I'll leave my job and you know become an impeachment attorney helping defend the president. And that he has repeatedly, you know, over the course of the past two months or so, expressed a willingness to leave his position, you know, a position that he's been twice reelected to the House, certainly suggests that he was potentially looking to step away from the House. And that often is a marker of someone who recognizes that their political future might be somewhat compromised. Right. Were those things just kind of cover for, because, you know, he possibly knew about this already. You know, that in a way, you know, in this crazy world, obviously that totally makes sense. Uh, You know, just finally, obviously we're going to learn more about this as this kind of story unfolds. But, you know, Matt Gates, as I mentioned, a big supporter of President Trump. He was out there. He's been on conservative media and just doing a lot of media hits many, many times last year. You know, he's got some questionable tweets out there you mentioned in your article that haven't really aged well. You know, so we're just going to keep seeing a lot more of him and and kind of digging into his life now. One of the reasons this is getting so much attention is simply because Matt Gates went out of his way to be a locus of attention in American politics, right? He was averaging 87 minutes on Fox News every month, which is a lot of airtime, right? Right. You know, there's a lot of time spent on Fox News. He's very engaged on social media. He has sort of embraced this new uh, style in which politicians will attack the other side on social media. He was very much someone who engaged in that sort of behavior. You know, and so he gave himself a national profile, and now he's definitely seen the downside of that. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.